Corinth is a church that's been planted into the most populated, the most wealthy, the most commercially minded, the most sophisticated, and the most sex-obsessed city in Eastern Europe at the time. And the lust for cultural values, for wealth, for power, for uh, style over substance, to be upwardly socially mobile, uh, to be liberal in sexual ethics, etc. Um, that it was rife in this pagan culture and it started to seep into the church and it was affecting the way the church thought, it was affecting the way that the church behaved and lived uh, and so the church was now being dogged by conflicts and controversies and compromises uh, and so to prevent the Corinthians from plummeting into this kind of godless abyss, Paul uh, is bringing them back to Jesus Christ, he's bringing them back to the gospel and he's going to tell them repeatedly as we've seen that this best news ever, this gospel of Jesus Christ, should recalibrate everything, it should change everything, it should shape everything for the Christian. And in the first four chapters, it's the kind of the first section of the book, and he has been addressing the issues of divisions amongst the Corinthian church. This idea that worldly wisdom had infiltrated the church and had affected the way the Corinthians thought about leaders in the church. And so divisions had emerged in the church as people sided with their favorite leaders. So some were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And the kind of the petty jealousy amongst these different factions had grown into rivalry and arguments about who was the best. And it was ripping the church apart. And so Paul is seeking to dismantle these factions. He's seeking to bring unity and overcome these, decision, uh, these divisions. And so he's been teaching the church about the true nature of Leadership. Now we get to uh, verses 18 in chapter 3 to the end of verse uh, 5 of chapter 4. And Paul is kind of wrapping up this first section. Uh, he's, he's bringing it to a head and he's identifying two crippling sin patterns that underlie the divisions amongst the Corinthians. Two crippling sin patterns that are rooted in their pride that are destroying the church. And so he's gonna highlight these two sin patterns and then he's gonna point us and the Corinthians to the liberating freedom of Jesus Christ so that we can live in fruitful freedom in him. And so these two crippling sin patterns are boasting and judging. And these are things that underlie the divisions amongst the church, boasting and judging. So we're going to uh, read the Bible together. I'm actually going to invite Olivia to come and read for us. So she's going to read from chapter 3, verse 18, to the end of 4, verse 5, and then we'll jump in. So, Olivia, come on out. Thank you. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Thanks very much. Thanks, Olivia. Great. Keep your Bibles open if you can so we can keep referencing them. Two sin patterns that are underlying the Corinthians divisions that are helpful for us to identify and respond to as well. First one is boasting. In verse 21, Paul says, do not boast. Do not boast. Now, the Corinthian boasting problem is not something new. It's something that we had seen before. If you look back uh, to chapter 1, verse 12, this is where we first saw the problem, where people were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas. And so they were divided, and they were boasting about their particular favorite leader. But then we saw Paul rebuke their boasting in verse 29 of chapter 1, where he says... Uh, God has made, brought to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he gives us the positive alternative in verse 31 of chapter 1, where he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there is a good kind of boasting to do, and there is a bad kind of boasting. Okay, And here, back in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul is highlighting the bad kind of boasting. Let no one boast in men. That means let no one boast in the wisdom of men, in the wisdom of this world. Let no one boast in themselves. And let no one boast in someone else. As you try and sort of maybe elevate yourself by clinging onto the coattails of your favorite pastor. And then Paul gives us two reasons why we shouldn't boast. Two reasons why we shouldn't boast. The first one is this. The wisdom of man is foolish. The wisdom of man is foolish. In verse 18, we read the most confrontational words in the letter so far, as Paul says to them, let no one deceive himself. Okay, so it's, it's a warning of self-delusion. It's easy for us to be blinded by pride and, by, and not to be able to then see our boasting. The Corinthians thought that they had become wise, that they, we said this before, that they thought that they had achieved a kind of a boss level spirituality and they were looking down on Paul and his companions. And so from chapter one, Paul has been exposing the futility of the Corinthians' wisdom. He's been saying the wisdom that you have is wisdom of this world, it's wisdom of this age, and it's a wisdom that doesn't cut the mustard with God. It's a wisdom that doesn't stand up to God. And his concern has been for the Corinthians and, and God's concern for us as, as a church is, is really highlighted in chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul really wants the Corinthians' faith not to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he wants our faith not to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Uh, and if you look back again to chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 25, we see how the wisdom of man is regarded by God. In verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, so, and then he goes on to say in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So in the eyes of God, the worldly wisdom is folly, but the wisdom of the cross, which appears foolishness to the world, 
is actually the very power of God. So back to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, don't be self-deceived, don't be deluded, don't think that you are wise. But then he goes on to say this, if you want to be truly wise, then you have to become a fool. If you want to be truly wise, that means wise in God's eyes, then you have to believe and do things that the world regards as foolish. Here's here's a list of things that the world regards as foolish that we're supposed to do as Christians. We're to believe that a crucified carpenter from uh, from Nazareth is the Lord of the universe and the saviour of all who will trust in him if they believe in what he accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. That's foolishness to the people walking their dogs this morning. Then if you throw into the hat biblical teaching on gender, sexual ethics and marriage and loving your enemies, that the road to true joy is the path of suffering, that folly is wisdom and wisdom is folly, that leaders are supposed to be servants, that God's people are nobodies that possess all things that we'll see in a few moments, that weakness is power, that the way up is the way down, that the first must be last and that to save your life you must lose it. All of these things are part of God's upside down kingdom. And they're part of what the world considers to be foolish, but they are things that we're to believe if we are to be truly wise. Then to reinforce his point, in verse 19, he quotes Job 5, verse 13. And in verse 20, he quotes Psalm 94, verse 11. And the point of these two Old Testament texts are just to reinforce his overall point that God sees and he knows and he understands the wisdom of men, but he makes it futile. He sees it that... It's futile. It it doesn't come to anything. It's a dead end, if you like. That although man can get, man's wisdom can get us to the moon or to Mars or it can create vaccines for COVID-19, it cannot do the thing that we need it to do most of all. And that is to bring us into relationship with God. So Paul is saying human wisdom and trusting in man's wisdom, elevating our own thoughts, boasting in ourselves or in others. It's all a dead end that doesn't lead to relationship with God. In fact, and the Bible teaches this right throughout, really, human wisdom, that it it fuels and it feeds human pride. And it supports boasting. And pride actually drives us away from God, not to God. Think about the Garden of Eden. What what happened to Adam and Eve when when they took the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. It didn't drive them to God. In their pride, they thought that they knew better than God. They didn't listen to God's word. So they took and ate of the fruit and it drove them away from God into hiding. Pride always drives us away from God. Because we come to believe that we're self-sufficient. We come to believe that we're independent or that we're self-determining or that we know better than God, that we're able to stand on our own two feet. And it makes us blind to our sin and it makes us blind to our need of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it leads to our eternal undoing. So Paul warns us this morning. He warns the Corinthians and then he warns us this morning at Grace Church. We've got to heed his exhortation. Let's not be self-deluded. Let's not think that this is beyond us. We live in a world full of people who have a superiority complex. And I often am found numbered among them. I think I'm wise. Probably you think you're wise in so many different ways. 
And we've got to recognize that worldly wisdom is constantly pressing down on us in every single, uh, every single day. That worldly wisdom is seeking to conform us and to shape us to the values and the standards of this world. And it happens in so many subtle ways and in so many uh, obvious ways. We watch the TV, we listen to music on Spotify, we hear adverts, we watch movies, we read books, we listen to podcasts, we have politicians on the TV, we have professors in our lecture halls, we have experts and influencers and celebrities who all have their own wisdom that they want to share with us. And they all want their wisdom to become our wisdom so that we're shaped to be like them and ultimately we're shaped into the values and the standards of this world. And it's constantly pressing down on us in so many ways. And so Paul would say to us if he was here this morning, and he does say to us through, through his word, through, God says to us through, this, through his word, we need to be able to stand up and resist and reject worldly wisdom and the shaping influences of the culture's values and standards because they are foolishness in God's sight. And so we're faced with a choice. Are we going to boast in man and in man's wisdom or are we going to boast in the Lord? Are we going to trust in man and man's wisdom in ourselves or are we going to trust in the Lord? That is the challenge. As Christians, are we prepared to be deemed Fools in the sight and eyes of the world, but wise in God's eyes. That's the first challenge when it comes to boasting. Are we prepared to be deemed fools in God's, uh, sorry, in, in the world's eyes and wise in God's eyes? We shouldn't boast. Let no one boast, Paul would say, because the wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this present age is foolishness. In the eyes of God. And who wants to pursue that which God has deemed foolish? That should be a no-brainer to us. But secondly, to get us, give us added encouragement to identify with God's wisdom and not to boast in man, he gives us a second reason. These reasons are found in verses 21 to 23. And it's really encapsulated in a statement he makes in verse 21 when he says, All things are yours. Or, all things are ours as Christians. All things are ours. So the first reason not to boast in verses 18, 19, and 20 was really a warning and a sounding of an an alarm. Don't boast in, in men's wisdom because it's foolishness in God's eyes and it won't get you anywhere. The second reason is full of relief and it's full of hope and it's it's full of uh, encouragement. He he would say, don't identify with, don't put your hope in, don't boast about men because. All things are yours. Verse 21, let no one boast in men because all things are yours. Now, if you're like me, I think that when I boast, it's going to win the applause of the people around me. It's going to catch the eye of passing admirers. It's going to bring me the laughter of the crowd. It's going to bring the pleasure of being thought well of, being part of the elite group, being in with you know, the, the in crowd. But Paul says, why would I settle for those temporal, passing, small, uh, insignificant tin pot treasures when all things are mine? Why would I boast and seek the the commendation of the perishing world around us when trusting God and trusting in his wisdom means I can have all things? So just 
Look with me at verses 21 to 23 again. Let's read them together. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now let's just try and track Paul's logic here for a minute, okay? So he says to us, if we truly through faith belong to Jesus Christ and if Jesus belongs to God which he does then we belong to God so do you follow that so that's why that's his that's one part of his argument if you belong to Christ because through faith you put your trust in him and Christ belongs to God then you belong to God as well but then he says in effect if every if God made everything and it all belongs to him And if everything belongs to God and and we're his children and and we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, then everything that God has belongs to us as well. So do you see that logic? We belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and we belong to God. And if God owns everything because he's the creator of the universe and he's the, the king of the world and we're his children and we're heirs with Christ, then everything that God has becomes ours as well. That's his logic here and it's a... It's a few short words, but it should make us go, what? Wow. And it's a little bit like a lightning bolt. You know, I love it when the weather forecast says there's going to be lightning storms because I like to look at the lightning. Anybody else like that? No? Well, Naomi's shrugging her shoulders like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Devon likes it. Thanks, mate. So me and Dev would be outside. We'd be looking for lightning bolts. We love Love lightning bolts, but storms pass far too quickly, and you never really see the great forks of lightning that come down onto the, onto the earth. And so I like to then look at pictures on Google Earth, you know, Google or whatever, Google Photo or whatever, people who've taken photos of lightning storms because you get great big forks of lightning and you see all of the beauty of a lightning storm. And that's what Paul is doing here. So he throws out this statement, all things are yours, in verse 21. It's like a lightning bolt. Boom! And then he goes on to say, and here's all of the, let's pause the picture. Here's all the individual lightning bolts that you can see. So he identifies eight things, I think. He says, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, all are yours. So let's think about what that means. What do those things mean? What does it mean that Peter, Paul, Apollos, the world, life, death, the present, and the future are ours? Well, John Piper really helped me in to understand this so I want to just tip my hat to him in this think about Paul Apollos and Cephas think about what the Corinthians were doing they were dividing amongst oh he's my favorite preacher he's my favorite pastor he's my favorite person to be with and so Paul is basically coming and he's saying why would you limit yourself to one particular leader why would you say I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas when God has given you all of these men to encourage you to serve you to teach you? Why would you just want 30% in identifying with Paul when you're missing out on the other 60% of Apollos and Cephas? All things are given to you by God. All of these men are given to you by God to teach you, to encourage you, to serve you, to point you to Christ. So don't limit yourself. Don't limit the gifts that God has given you. Don't limit the grace that God gives to you. Then the world The whole world, this God-created, God-owned, God-ruled, natural, yet sinful and broken and painful and horrible and beautiful and hopeful world is ours. 
All of it's ours, not just part of it, but the whole world is ours, isn't it? And so Paul, I think, would help us to see that he would elaborate and he would say, look, you know, the world is yours. You're not a victim of the world. You're not, the world is not your master. The world is really, it's given to you by God. It's a gift to you to serve you. Everything in it, everything that happens on it, from the most beautiful experience that you might have to the most malignant cancer that you might experience, everything is given you by God and he's working it together for your ultimate good and great eternal purposes. He's given us life. Every breath we take, every heartbeat, every day we face, every night that we sleep, every word, deed, action, relationship, conversation, every accomplishment, every plan, whether we fail or succeed, every emotion that rises within us, every thought that passes through our heads, every book that we read, every tweet that we tweet, every social media post that we make, every text that we send, every conversation that we have, every gift that we give or receive, every sin that we commit, all of it, it's all of us. Life is, is ours. We don't serve life. Life is there to serve us. And life will serve us forever. It will prepare us for eternity. Paul says, all things are yours. Then he goes on to describe death. He says, death is yours as well. And you think, wow, what, what does that mean? Well, I think it means because of Jesus, because of the empty tomb and the empty cross, because death has been swallowed up in victory, because Paul will then go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone through Christ. Death is no longer something for the Christian to be feared, but it is our servant. Death serves us while we are alive to make us wise, to make us serious, to make us urgent, to make us faithful and to make us fruitful. As we consider the, the shortness of our three score years and ten, it puts things in perspective. And then death will serve us ultimately that when we close our eyes in death, we will open them again in the presence of the Lord and be at home with Jesus. Then he says, the present, all things, all things in the present. So it's not that we're just waiting for a future day and we've just got to see this day out. But this time right now serves us. Every moment, whether it be sad or happy or fearful or bold or lonely or a moment of grieving or a moment of ecstasy, all the moments of the now God has given to us to serve us. Everything that we experience now in the present is a divine brushstroke on the canvas of our lives. We're not slaves to time. We're not slaves to chance or to fate or to an unfortunate series of events. The present is God's gift and tool to us to shape us into who he wants us to be and to prepare us for the future. And then Paul says, finally, we have the future that there is nothing that will come to us in 10 seconds or 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years or 10 decades from now that will not ultimately serve God's purposes and our good. Everything that will come to pass from this moment on that's in the future, God is going to work for our eternal advantage. And the Bible promises, doesn't it, that we will one day shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father that we will be kings and priests, that we'll judge angels, that we'll have resurrection bodies like Jesus' body, 
that we'll be able to walk with God as his friend, as his child, that we'll be with Jesus forever, that we'll never sin again, that we'll know and grow in the immeasurable and innumerable pleasures in God's presence forever, and that we'll experience the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. Paul says the future is ours. And all of this because of Jesus. Because we're united to Jesus. Because we belong to him. Because we're his body. Because we're his bride. Because we're his subjects. Because we're his children. Well, we're God's children. We're Jesus' brother. And because we're fellow heirs with him. All things are ours. And so Paul says when you know that, it puts a different perspective on the boasting in the here and now, doesn't it? Why boast in the light of a candle when the burning brightness of the sun is ours? And belonging to Jesus makes all these things ours because we are Christ's and Christ is God, because Christ is God's word, because Christ is God's image, because Christ is God's beloved, because Christ is God's radiance, because Christ is God's essence and heir. And all that God the Father is and has and can be for Christ, he is and has and can be for us. All things are ours. So hopefully you can see why we should never boast in men, but only boast in Jesus alone. And we're not going to get to the second one this week, are we? We'll get to that next week. But here's, the, here's what I want you to take away. When feelings of insecurity you're, in your abilities, in your family life, in your job, in your parenting, in your serving, in your role and what you're doing, when you're tempted to boast in yourself, when you're tempted to attach yourself to someone who is stronger or better than you, someone more competent or more esteemed or more gifted or more secure so that you can sort of ride on their coattails, Paul would say, don't do it. Don't boast in men. Don't boast in yourself. You don't need to because all things are yours and Christ is yours. When you feel insignificant in the world, when social media tempts you to boast or attach yourself to someone or to a group that's more prominent or more shrewd or more successful or admired, Paul and God would say, don't do it. There's no need. All things are yours. Foolish boasting, boasting in the wisdom of men, boasting in yourself. It's foolishness in the eyes of God. You don't need to do it. All things are yours. Christ is yours. You belong to God. When the cravings for the kudos of this world that come from being popular or being up to speed on the latest fashion or music or films or TV or sports or pastors or books or mobile apps, when you're tempted to boast in yourself, Paul and God would say, don't do it. It's foolishness in the eyes of God. And anyway, all things are yours. Jesus is yours. Don't do it. Instead of chasing worldly wisdom that's folly in God's sight, let's humble ourselves. Let's rest upon the deep, solid, unshakable wisdom of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who alone is our confidence, our peace, and our joy. Let's pray.